the matter? Honey? About what? That we didn't do something. Ma, now you feel that way because we left in such a hurry. We took care of everything. Believe me, we did. Did I turn off the coffee? No. I did. Did you lock up? Yeah. Did you close the garage? That's it. I forgot to close the garage. That's not it. What else could we be forgetting? Kevin! In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. everyone, I'm Evan. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 236, Home Alone. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And it is Christmas. So we are celebrating on this podcast with a month of Christmas movies culminating in Home Alone. But as always, huge welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast Welcome back to all of you regular returning listeners. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. You guys give up or are you thirsty for more? I guess you're thirsty for more because you came back. And I'm so happy to have you here, all of you, for the history and legacy of Home Alone, the final episode of Verbal Diorama in 2023. And this has been such an incredible year for this podcast and Thank you so much to anyone who's listened to any episode of this podcast, actually. But if you have listened to the most recent festive editions of this podcast, I've done episodes on the holiday and Die Hard. I wanted to do a festive season on Verbal Diorama culminating in this movie. And I wanted to do Christmas classics. I wanted to do a rom-com. So I did the holiday. I wanted to do an action movie that's also a Christmas movie. And I've already done The Long Kiss Goodnight. That's episode 88 of this podcast. So instead I did Die Hard and I wanted to do a family Christmas classic. And there are so many family Christmas movies out there. But it had to be this one. It just had to be this one. And just a note as well, Die Hard has been especially popular this month on this podcast. So thank you so much for listening to that one. Thank you so much for listening to The Holiday. And thank you so much in advance of listening to this one too. I'm just going to jump straight in. Did you ever want to be left home alone as a kid? Imagine the fun. Imagine the mischief. Imagine the sadism. Here's the trailer for Home Alone. Where are you going? We're going to miss the plane. When the McAllister family left on their Christmas vacation... Did we miss the plane? No, you just made it. They forgot one small thing. Have yourself... I have a terrible feeling. Did you lock up? Let yeah. Do we set the timers on the lights? Mm-hmm. What else could we be forgetting? 
troubles will be ours. Kevin! Ah! Home alone. Police in the northern suburbs are on the lookout for a pair of burglars who are calling themselves the Wet Bandits. We know that you're in there. It's Santa Claus and his elf. Get off my property. This is my house. I have to defend it. Where's your mother? My mom's in the car. Where's your father? He's at work. What about your brothers and sisters? I'm an only child. Where do you live? Can't tell you that. Why not? Because you're a stranger. He's a kid. I mean, what can a kid do to us? Kids are stupid. I know I was. You still are, Marv. This is it. Ow! I don't care if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike. I am going to get home to my son. Why'd you dress like a chicken? Gus Polinski, Polka King of the Midwest. If you have to get to Chicago, we'll gladly drive you. Hey, guys. Yesterday, he was just a kid. But tonight, he's a home security system. You guys give up, or you're thirsty for more? From John Hughes. You know, I got a feeling this is going to be your best Christmas ever. A family comedy without the family. Home alone. Are you here all alone? I'm eight years old. You think I'd be here alone? I don't think so. Directed by Chris Columbus, coming November 16th. It's Christmas time, and the entire McAllister family is preparing to head to Paris on a holiday. Eight-year-old Kevin is the black sheep of the family and is regularly picked on by his siblings and cousins. After a scuffle with his older brother Burr's over pizza, Kevin finds himself forced to sleep alone on the third floor of the house. The next day, the McAllisters accidentally sleep in and barely make it to their flight, but when airborne, they realise they forgot Kevin. As his family desperately tries to book a flight back to Chicago, Kevin is thrilled to have the house to himself. However, the wet bandits, a pair of burglars, Harry and Marv, have robbed several houses in the neighbourhood and now have their sights set on the McAllister house. It's up to Kevin to protect his home and realise that all he wants for Christmas is his family back. Let's run through the cast. We have Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister, Joe Pesci as Harry Lime, Daniel Stern as Marv Merchins, John Hurd as Peter McAllister, Catherine O'Hara as Kate McAllister, Roberts Blossom as Old Man Marley, Devin Rattray as Buzz McAllister, Angela Gothels as Linny McAllister, Hilary Wolfe as Megan McAllister, Michael C. Marona as Jeff McAllister, Jerry Bamman as Uncle Frank, and John Candy as Gus Polinski. Home Alone was written by John Hughes and directed by Chris Columbus. And if we're going to start with anything on this movie, we kind of have to start with John Hughes. John Hughes started his career in 1980 as a writer of National Lampoon's Class Reunion and National Lampoon's Vacation. The National Lampoon link will return later. And he made his directorial debut in 1984 with the film Sixteen Candles. His earnest and heartfelt teen movies like The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Pretty in Pink would pigeonhole him somewhat as a writer and director of teen social dynamics and navigating adolescence. He branched out in 1987 with Planes, Trains and Automobiles and in 1989 Uncle Buck and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation the double pairing of which would shape his next screenplay, Home Alone. 
It was on the 8th of August 1989 that Hughes jotted down an idea while jostling his young family on a trip to Europe. And all of the anxieties that came with A, having a young family, and B, travelling abroad. What if he'd left one of his kids behind by accident, he thought. After he returned from his holiday, Hughes completed the first draft of Home Alone in just nine days. Also in 1989, Chris Columbus, he of Gremlins fame, that's episode 74, directed Heartbreak Hotel, his second feature after Adventures in Babysitting. Unfortunately, Heartbreak Hotel was a bit of a flop. But despite this setback, he received a script from John Hughes. It wasn't Home Alone, it was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, based on Hughes' short story Christmas 59. Columbus really wanted to direct a Christmas movie, and so he signed on to direct National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He went for dinner with Chevy Chase, the star of the National Lampoon movies. Let's just say the pair didn't get on very well. Columbus stuck around, though, shooting second unit and shots of downtown Chicago, and had another meeting with Chase, which went worse than before. John Hughes, who was a producer on the movie, had a call from Columbus throwing in the towel, claiming he could no longer work with Chevy Chase. Columbus was replaced with Jeremiah S. Chechik, and two weeks after leaving Christmas Vacation, he was surprised to receive two more scripts from Hughes. One was Reach the Rock, a comedy drama that would eventually be made in 1998, and Home Alone, which he found funnier, he loved the Christmas theme, and Chris Columbus really, really wanted to direct that Christmas movie. Columbus would go on to do uncredited rewrites of the Home Alone script to add more heart to the zany comedy, which by now also included a home invasion plot and two scary robbers, as any child left home alone would naturally be frightened of robbers. Columbus added the subplot featuring old man Marley, his notoriety in the neighbourhood, and his estrangement from his son, leading to him not being able to see his granddaughter. It was felt that this would lead to a more emotional happy ending. Meanwhile, John Hughes had approached Warner Brothers to finance and distribute Home Alone. Warner Brothers had agreed to a $10 million budget, which was considerably less than most studio movies of 1990. Pre-production commenced, locations were scouted, sets were being built. A house had been found on 671 Lincoln Avenue in Winnetka, Illinois, an idyllic three-storey house owned by John and Cynthia Abenshine, acquaintances of Jacqueline Buxbaum. Hughes' location manager for Home Alone. They'd met when she was scouting locations for Uncle Buck. Buxbaum had scouted their house on Lincoln Avenue for Uncle Buck, but the house wasn't chosen for that movie. She went back to them with the offer to film Home Alone there, and they accepted. Speaking of Uncle Buck, on the set of that movie, John Hughes had cast the eight-year-old Macaulay Culkin. Despite his young age, Culkin impressed Hughes with his acting skills, and child actors, let's be honest, can usually be a bit more missed than hit. But when it came to casting Kevin McAllister, Hughes recommended that Columbus cast Culkin. Columbus still auditioned 200 other young boys for the role, due diligence, I guess you could say, but still went back to Culkin and agreed he was the right kid for the part. Columbus would say retrospectively that he had no idea of Culkin's troubled home life at the time and made a point of saying for future films like the Harry Potter series, he would cast the family as well as the actor. Culkin's father, Kit, older brother of Bonnie Bedelia, that's the link to the last episode on Die Hard if you haven't realised, managed his children's careers and not only was Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, but also his younger brother, Kieran, as Fuller, go easy on the Pepsi. Culkin has been open about his cruel and violent childhood at the hands of his father in subsequent years, 
and became estranged from his parents after taking them to court to block them from controlling his trust fund, which was estimated to be worth between 15 and $20 million. A lot of outlets at the time reported this as him becoming emancipated from his parents, but all he did was remove his parents' names from the trust fund. For the role of busy mother five, Kate McAllister, originally up for the role was Elizabeth Perkins, who unfortunately had to turn it down due to other commitments. Perkins would go on to eventually marry Home Alone cinematographer Julio McCat, whom she met a few years later on Miracle on 34th Street. Casting director Janet Hershenson knew of Catherine O'Hara from her starring role in Beetlejuice and immediately offered the role to O'Hara. Apparently, Macaulay Culkin, now 43 years of age, still refers to O'Hara as mum. Robert De Niro turned down the role of Harry, which went to Joe Pesci, an actor definitely not known for his family-friendly Christmas comedies. Pesci lamented not being able to curse as frequently as he might usually do. With Pesci cast, it was important to get the right sidekick actor for Marv, and Daniel Stern was cast because the pair had great chemistry. They'd also worked together before, which helped. But there was a problem with Stern after the schedule was extended and they couldn't afford to stretch the already tight budget to pay him more. He would leave the movie and was replaced with Daniel Roebuck. But the chemistry with Pesci just wasn't there in rehearsals and they made the decision to fire Roebuck and get Stern back, regardless of the budgetary restrictions. They begged Warner Brothers for the extra cash. He was the best person for the role. But the budget for this movie was going up and up. And it's something that I am going to be coming back to. One person who didn't contribute to the increase in budget was the late, great John Candy. But that was kind of his fault. Hughes offered the small role of Polka King Gus Polinski to his friend Candy and suggested he take a small slice of the profits. At the time, not realising Home Alone would become the biggest movie of 1990. Candy turned down the offer and instead agreed to work for scale earning $414 for 22 hours work. And that's 22 hours in one go as well. Candy was the only person allowed to go off script and improvise, but that perk would still make him the lowest paid actor in Home Alone. Even the pizza guy earned more. Unfortunately, they also ran out of time to film a scene where Gus and Kate part ways, and that's why you only see the van pull up outside the house. And rehearsals for this movie, as you can imagine, were intense often featuring 12 or more actors, especially in the family scenes, which were all tightly choreographed. Chris Columbus likened it to directing a battle sequence only in a kitchen with kids. Despite Hughes' agreement with Warner Brothers, he was concerned about the budget and met secretly with 20th Century Fox in the event of Warner Brothers having issue with the rising budget and cancelling the production before it even started filming. Legally, another studio isn't meant to see a script until it's in turnaround. However, a copy was clandestinely delivered to Fox using quote-unquote ways and means. Basically, it was left somewhere for them to pick up. Fox executives read the script, they loved it, and said that if Warner Brothers attempted to cancel the production, Fox would immediately pick it up. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Hughes' intuition was correct. The budget had ballooned from the initial $10 million to $14.7 million, and Warner Brothers threatened to pull the plug unless the budget was cut to $13.5 million. So the team pushed back and argued why they needed the extra cash and that there was no more fat to trim from the movie. So Warner Brothers retaliated by shutting down production immediately. As Warner Brothers executives were shutting down departments, 
executive producer Scott Rosenfeld was reopening departments and telling them they were now a Fox production. Warner Brothers having issue with a few extra million dollars led to them missing out on, shall we say, a few more extra, extra millions and millions and millions of dollars. But I'll come back to that. Once Fox came on board, filming started in earnest between February to May 1990. And despite all the pre-planning, they say to never work with children or animals, there were a lot of children. Joe Pesci would limit his off-screen interactions with Macaulay Culkin to, quote, maintain the integrity of the adversarial relationship, unquote. Daniel Stern took the opposite approach and hung out with Culkin off-screen. But let's go back to that famous house, because the owners of the house, John and Cynthia Abensheen, originally agreed to let the production film at their home for six weeks. The crew wound up working at the house for roughly four months. Though much of the film was shot on a soundstage, the house itself was featured in exterior shots, as well as interior shots centred around the living room and the foyer's grand staircase. The team got to work hanging festive new wallpaper and building an exterior stairway to the basement that Marv would eventually slip down. They brought in a backhoe and dug up the property and put in fake steps at a fake door. The Abensheen's six-year-old daughter Lauren would hang out with the young stars of the movie between takes as the family converted their second-floor primary bedroom suite into a makeshift apartment to use while the cast and crew filmed the shots downstairs. Certain parts of the house were redecorated to the more Christmassy green and red colour scheme to match the soundstage's decoration. And all of the rooms were recreated on the soundstage. It was built in the disused gym of Nutria High School's West Campus in Northfield. And this setting had previously been used for Hughes for Uncle Buck and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And the production company had already set up offices in that school. They built and decorated all of the house interiors, two stories worth in the gymnasium. And in the disused swimming pool, they built the flooded basement sets, which they then flooded because it was in a swimming pool. Chicago's O'Hare International Airport served as the filming location for both the Chicago and Paris airport scenes. Posing as France's Orly Airport, they filmed for four 16-hour days with thousands of extras, with the cast running at full speed through the terminal. All of the extras had been choreographed so as they would not get in the way. Other locations seen in the movie were Trinity United Methodist Church in Wilmette for the exteriors of the church, and Grace Episcopal Church in Oak Park for the interiors of the church and for the Chris Columbus penned exchange between Kevin and Old Man Marley. And I think I've mentioned there were a lot of kids in this movie. Many of them hung out after filming. And one of the things that Julio McCat, the cinematographer, did was he deliberately composed shots to amplify the sensations of being a kid. He used wide angles, low camera heights, made the lights in the house brighter and made everything seem big. It's like when you revisit a home from your childhood in adulthood and everything seems so much smaller because you only remember it from when you were a child when everything was huge. The in-camera stunts are some of the most visceral and wince-inducing that exist in cinema and that's because all of the stunts were done for real. Even in the industry today, stunt performers will refer to acting out exaggerated falls as doing a home alone. Standing in for Pesci and Stern, respectively, with stuntmen Troy Brown and Leon Delaney. While navigating the McAllister home, they take several ridiculously cartoonish falls, including, but not limited to, a bunch of strategically placed micro-machines, paint cans to the face, a slip down some icy steps, and delivering each fall genuinely and authentically 
without wires, without mats. It really is a feat of stunt performance. Obviously, the production carefully set up the booby trap stunts to ensure that no one was hurt. For instance, the soldering iron that Kevin hangs on the doorknob was actually made from red neon tubing and the nail that Marv steps on in the basement was spring-loaded to retract beneath his foot. But how did they set Joe Pesci's head on fire? That is 100% Joe Pesci in that scene. There was no CGI face replacement in 1990 and that's definitely no stunt performer. The shot was put together by production designer Joe Muto and it's a remarkably simple effect called Pepper's Ghost where a mannequin is in one corner of the room with a flame set to hit it with reflective glass in between it and the actual shot of Pesci. When Pesci opens the door and switches the blowtorch on, there's no flame actually coming out. And what we see is the reflection of the flame hitting the mannequin. Sometimes the old techniques really are the best. Pepper's ghost was created in the mid-19th century for the stage. Also a real effect was the tarantula on Daniel Stern's face. There's no glass involved, there's no tricks, the spider really did crawl over his face. And to avoid scaring it, he wasn't allowed to scream. His ear-piercing bellow had to be added with ADR. And when it came to the session, Stern simply said, do you want me to scream like a girl? And that's the scream they used. That doesn't mean that everything in this movie is real. Because shooting a BB gun point blank at someone's face is actually kind of dangerous. So what they did was they set up the shot, Macaulay Culkin pretended to shoot, and they contacted Kevin Nordine, who had a studio in his parents' basement, to hand-paint the ball bearing right onto the film, frame by frame. That split-second shot of a ball bearing was actually a hand-painted effect. That and the twinkle of Harry's tooth was hand-painted by Nordine. And obviously, you get a ball bearing to the face, you kind of want to curse a little bit, but they couldn't, a bit like this podcast. And both Pesci and Stern, especially Pesci, let's be honest, struggled with the lack of profanity. But the cartoon gibberish in lieu of cursing sounds better anyway. You know the intention, you get the gist. The soundtrack for the stunts was almost as impressive as the stunts themselves. They took frozen roast beef and hit it against the ground to get the sound of bodies hitting the ground. They put a soldering iron onto chicken skin and then recorded the flesh sizzling to get the sound of a hand touching a red-hot doorknob. They played the sound effects big and bold as if they were part of the score. For some of the more personal shots, they used a tiny camera, an ARRI 2C camera, so tiny it was used for medical purposes, often called the medical 2C camera. It had a short 100-foot spool, which was less than a minute, Director of photography Julio Macat dubbed it the bonus cam. It was the smallest camera available at the time and it quickly became Macat's favourite way to show the booby traps. At one point, it was tied to an end of a rope to simulate the perspective of the iron as it fell down the chute onto Marv's face. They would always have two normal cameras shooting simultaneously and Macat kept the bonus cam running to capture any other shots he thought were interesting and also use it for close-ups of the actors' faces. The makers of Home Alone cited both A Christmas Story and the 1971 thriller Straw Dogs as inspiration for the movie. The movie's production designer John Muto admitted he expected a few of Home Alone's more violent gags to get cut, but surprisingly they all made it into the final film. The very first day of filming they shot a sequence where Kevin goes into a pharmacy and gets a toothbrush and Old Van Marley comes in, scares him and he runs away. 
That whole sequence was shot when there was a massive snowstorm outside to the point where they laid cables. The snowstorm came in and they couldn't find the cables anymore. It turned into the biggest snowstorm in years. They would take advantage of the snow though and on day two with all the fresh snow on the ground they did the shots they needed of Kevin waking up to find his family gone and Kate returning to the house with the snow falling. When they didn't have the real snow they'd use an ice chipper as well as potato flake snow, snow made out of fake mashed potato which would then start to break down and rot as time progressed. And I think everyone, everyone thinks that Angels with Filthy Souls is a real movie because I know that I did and it wasn't until very recently and rather embarrassingly probably only a few years ago till I realised that Angels with Filthy Souls is not a real movie. The title being a play on Angels with Dirty Faces starring James Cagney, Pat O'Brien, Humphrey Bogart and Sheridan and George Bancroft. The movie was only given a title to show on the VHS tape Kevin puts into the player and it was filmed exactly like a movie from the late 30s would have been filmed with a carbon arc lighting system where a carbon piece of charcoal is placed into each lamp and with original black and white negatives direct from Kodak which needed three to four times more light than normal to expose the film. Julio McCat used strong backlighting, smoked up the room and had the shutters with the classic noir style. He used double fog filters and tried to match the camera lenses as well as using a little netting material in front of the lenses to blow out the highlights even more. The heat on the set from all of the lighting was intense, with all the actors and crew sweating from the heat. Set directors Eve Corley and Dan Clancy fitted out the room with an old typewriter, a gramophone and the infamous Tommy gun, a Colt 1921 AC Thompson submachine gun, the same gun James Cagney had wielded in the 1935 mobster movie G-Men. Johnny and Snakes, played by Ralph Foody and Michael Guido respectively, filmed the scenes on the final day of pre-production before shooting for the movie had even started. Originally, Foody was to play Snakes and Guido Johnny, but since Foody had had knee surgery, the drop to his knees death scene couldn't be done, so the roles were switched. Foody would utter the famous line, Keep the change, you filthy animal. The film within a film would have turned 85 this year had it been a real movie but unfortunately I'm really sorry to tell you all it's not a real movie but Home Alone is a real movie and this podcast is a real podcast and the obligatory Keanu reference is the obligatory Keanu reference and it is also real and it's a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than it's Christmas and if you can't link to a movie featuring Keanu Reeves at Christmas then when can you link to a movie featuring Keanu Reeves? I try and do it all year round, but this Christmas, if you're watching a movie, maybe do the festive thing and link it to Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves has, as I understand it, never actually been left home alone, but he did star in a home invasion movie in 2015, alongside rising star Anna de Armas, directed by Eli Roth. Knock Knock has him as a husband and father who's kind of left home alone, and visited by two intruders so it actually is a bit more of a grown-up version of Home Alone in a way but it's also kind of not really anything like Home Alone but it is technically a home invasion movie and it stars Keanu Reeves so it totally counts and as always Merry Christmas Keanu thank you for being part of this podcast. Not only has Home Alone become synonymous with the festive period but John Williams incredible score for Home Alone has also become synonymous with the festive season. 
you know Christmas is coming when you hear John Williams' score for Home Alone. Early posters, though, named Bruce Broughton as the composer. And this was because Chris Columbus originally wanted Bruce Broughton to compose the score of Home Alone. But Broughton had to cancel at the last minute due to his commitments with the rescuers down under. Obviously, needing someone to compose the movie, Columbus got in touch with his friend Steven Spielberg. And who's Steven Spielberg going to call? Not the Ghostbusters. He's going to call his friend John Williams. And so Columbus got in touch with John Williams and John Williams was more than happy to compose the score for Home Alone. And in a career of memorable scores, this is up there with probably one of his most memorable and probably the most memorable Christmas score. The movie also includes a lot of traditional Christmas music, including Oh Holy Night, Carol of the Bells, and also the song Somewhere in My Memory, which is used as the theme song. And Getting Williams really was the icing on the cake for Chris Columbus. The score was sent to him while he was shooting Only the Lonely in Chicago on cassette tape, and he and the crew would listen on a boombox, remember those, during lunch breaks, and they just fell in love with Williams' score, as we literally all have. And one of the very special things about this score is often composers play music over action. But John Williams and supervising sound editor Michael Wilhoit decided that you lead the music up to the critical moment, such as a specific stunt, for example, and then the sound effect of the stunt is the payoff of that music and not the music itself. It was screened for test audiences in Chicago and the crew were convinced that it had blockbuster potential, but you never know until you have your first screening. The first screening was attended by Chris Columbus and John Hughes and the response blew them away. Even George Lucas had heard on the grapevine that this was going to be a huge movie. After chairman of 20th Century Fox Joe Roth met with Lucas, Lucas told him, you know you have a huge hit on your hands, right? Fox decided to take advantage of the positivity. They backed the movie completely and got a Thanksgiving release date. And when it was finally released, Home Alone was nothing short of a phenomenon. No one really knew what they had on their hands, but it would open on the 16th of November 1990 against Rocky V, Three Men and a Little Lady, aforementioned The Rescuers Down Under and Predator 2, and it would beat them all to the coveted number one spot with $27 million in its first week, over 7 million more than its closest rival Rocky V, and recouping its budget back in that first week alone. The following week, Three Men and a Little Lady climbed to second, but still couldn't compete with the might of Home Alone. In fact, week on week, movies were being released. Big movies too, like The Godfather Part 3, Kindergarten Cop, Edward Scissorhands, and all were denied that number one. For 12 weeks, Home Alone sat at the number one spot, and even when it was eventually dethroned in February 1991 by Sleeping with the Enemy and L.A. Story, it would still stay in the top ten for a total of 23 weeks. So I think you know what the financial situation was like, but on its eventual $18 million budget, it grossed $286 million in the US and $191 million worldwide for a total box office gross of $477 million. It was the second highest grossing film of 1990 worldwide after Ghost. It was the highest grossing film of 1990 domestically in the US, beating Ghost by over $50 million. It was also the highest grossing Christmas film until it was surpassed by Dr. Seuss's The Grinch in 2018. Considering its status as a beloved holiday classic, critics were surprisingly curt. 
It sits at 66% on Rotten Tomatoes and was famously given the thumbs down by Roger Ebert. It would, however, go on to be nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Original Score for John Williams and Best Original Song for Somewhere in My Memory, but it would lose to Dances with Wolves and Dick Tracy, respectively. You might know that Home Alone has had some sequels. What you might not know is there are five sequels to Home Alone, all of which feature a small boy being left at home alone in some way or other and or defending their home slash place of residence. Home Alone 2 Lost in New York is probably the most well-known sequel with all of the major cast returning and it made even more money than the original movie. Home Alone 3 retained John Hughes as a screenwriter and producer as well as Julio McCat as director of photography but none of the cast. The made-for-TV Home Alone 4 Taking Back the House features the main characters of the first two films, the McAllister family, but none of the original actors. Home Alone The Holiday Heist was another made-for-TV movie with a new cast and new characters, and Home Sweet Home Alone premiered on Disney Plus in 2021 and had Devin Rattray return this time as Officer Buzz McAllister, but otherwise a brand new cast and new characters. And obviously there were a lot of famous faces in the original Home Alone. It made a star out of Macaulay Culkin. But one star that's often not talked so much about is the Home Alone house, which became a major tourist attraction in Winnetka and still is to this day. And in 1991, Home Alone's filmmakers returned with another offer. They wanted to come back to Lincoln Avenue to shoot a few scenes for Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. And the Abensheen family were game for the right price. According to John Abensheen, the studio initially turned down their request for a higher rate, but it eventually relented. The family donated their fee to a Chicago homeless shelter, and true to their word, the filmmakers kept to a much tighter production timeline that time around. The Abensheens stayed on Lincoln Avenue until 2011, when they decided to put the property up for sale, and this was no average home, so their estate agent, Marissa Hopkins, devised a splashy marketing strategy that included faux movie posters, a national media rollout and restrictive open house policies. The house sold in 2012 for a reported $1.585 million. And the house is still there today. It still remains a popular tourist attraction. A kid defending his home from burglars is hardly the recipe for a classic Christmas comedy, which is probably why Warner Brothers bailed on a family comedy that they deemed to be getting a bit too expensive. Home Alone is the infamous lightning in a bottle that you simply can't replicate again. The John Hughes script, Chris Columbus's direction and Macaulay Culkin. Young enough to be cute enough to get away with it and old enough to be smart enough to get away with it. Without these three elements, Home Alone would easily just be another Christmas movie. And of course it helps when you have a singular image ingrained in the hearts and minds of millions. Culkin in the bathroom, his hands clasped to the sides of his face, screaming like the modern-day Munch painting. It wouldn't work with a six-year-old and it wouldn't work with a 13-year-old. It really is the epitome of perfect casting. But it's not all saccharine sweetness. Despite Columbus's attempts to inject some into the script with old man Marley and his family woes, I'm pretty certain Kevin McAllister breaks several laws and the recipients of his sadistic traps, as hilarious as they are, nail in the foot notwithstanding because I still can't watch that bit, they are just as mean in return, but too dumb to actually have the audience be too scared of them. And that's just really clever writing and acting. Joe Pesci especially invokes that fear from his gangster movies, but he stops short of being genuinely menacing. 
Although you do feel more for Harry and Marv as you get older. Shouldn't those guys be in a morgue? At the very least, critical care? An article from The Week in 2012 looked into the extent of Harry and Marv's injuries, surmising, quote, let's estimate the distance from the first floor to the basement at 15 feet and assume the steam iron weighs four pounds and note that the iron strikes Marv squarely in the mid-face. This is a serious impact with enough force to fracture the bones surrounding the eyes. This is also known as a blowout fracture and can lead to serious disfigurement and debilitating double vision if not repaired properly, unquote. The fact Columbus genuinely thought the stuntman Troy Brown had broken his back doing a flip back suggests the severity of the potential injuries. Brown hadn't, he was fine, but falls do make people laugh and they will continue to make people laugh until time immortal. Home Alone is a studio movie that doesn't feel like a studio movie. 20th Century Fox was smart enough to just let this team do their thing, to hire the best actors for the roles, and to squeeze as much out of the budget as possible. Thank the Christmas gods they didn't buckle to Warner Brothers and reduce the budget, because either this movie wouldn't exist, or it'd be so totally different. And this is a movie that has a plot that's implausible, but if it were too realistic, it'd actually be a horror movie, and no one wants that. On a subconscious level, it empowers kids, it's wish fulfillment. Kevin McAllister gave us all hope that if we were magically left home alone, we'd be able to cope and we'd have all the ice cream and bad movies we wanted, even angels with filthy souls, and it'd be fun and there would be zero repercussions. I mentioned last episode on Die Hard. What makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie? All of the traditional themes of Christmas movies, redemption, family, saving the day and reconciliation with loved ones. This movie has all of that plus a healthy dose of nostalgia, slapstick humour, neglectful parents and methods of torture. Who doesn't want to slip over some strategically placed micro-machines this Christmas day? Well, you won't, but you know the kid in you would have loved to see it. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Home Alone and thank you so much for your continued support of this podcast. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to you all. As always, if you have a chance over this festive period, if you could get involved and help this podcast to grow and reach new people, that would be amazing. You can tell your friends and family about this podcast. You could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. Or you can find me and follow me on social media and you can retweet or like posts, which also helps too. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. And if you have enjoyed this episode on Home Alone, you might also like the previous episode on Die Hard because it's basically Home Alone in an office building and Bonnie Bedelia is Macaulay Culkin's aunt. I wish you and your families the happiest and healthiest of holiday seasons and wonderful New Year's. This podcast returns in the new year for animation season with a Pixar movie. One of the most requested Pixar movies on this podcast, actually, with minimal dialogue and serious things to say about the environment, waste management, consumerism, and the risk of obesity. It's also the first Pixar film to be immortalised in the Criterion collection. The first movie kicking off animation season and also kicking off 2024 on this podcast is Wally. So join me in the new year of 2024, back to Thursday episodes for the history and legacy of Wally.
As always, huge thank you to the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. To Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. Merry Christmas to all of the patrons and have a wonderful new year. Thank you so much for your support, your continued support of this podcast. I am so very grateful to you all. If you do want to join them, it's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon or verbaldiorama.com slash tips to give a one-off tip. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com and you can find my website verbaldiorama.com. And finally, who is it? It's me, Snakes. I got the stuff. Leave it on the doorstep and get the hell out of here. All right, Johnny. But what about my money? What money? AC said you had some dough for me. That a fact. How much do I owe you? AC said 10%. Too bad AC ain't in charge no more. What do you mean? He's upstairs taking a bath. He'll call you when he gets out. Hey, I tell you what I'm going to give you, snakes. I'm going to give you to the count of ten to get your ugly, yellow, no-good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. All right, Johnny, I'm sorry. I'm going. One, two, ten. <laughs> Keep the change, you filthy animal. I know it's from Home Alone too, but Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. Bye. Movie should know. Movie should talk.